0: Well, I'm Pastor Michael, and uh, today we begin our track toward our Easter celebration. Over the next three weeks, we're going to be challenged to rethink Easter. You know this. Easter is more than bunnies and baskets. We've got to ask ourselves the question, do our friends, do our neighbors, do our co-workers, do our family members, do they really know that truth? Perhaps it's going to be your role To help them in the next few weeks to rethink the meaning of Easter. It's somewhat hard to sum up Easter in three words. Of course, Jesus is alive is a great way to start summing that, and that's a part of our central proclamation when we talk about Easter. But I want to go at it with three other words over the next three weeks. The first is hope, and then we'll talk about sacrifice next week, and then forgiveness on Easter Sunday morning. This morning we began with the word hope. We sometimes find ourselves in situations where we desperately need somebody to speak hope into our lives. We need hope to make it through. We need hope to think that the task is not insurmountable. Hope that the new experience will be a good one. Hope that the new day will bring a new reality of sorts. Hope that the relationship will be restored. Hope that our health will improve. Hope that we will indeed find hope. There's not one of us in this room this morning that does not live our daily lives without needing and wanting hope to be something that is real for us us. It was the same for the apostle John's readers. They were and we are today looking for words of hope in the gospel of John. And so, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and look with me in John chapter 1, and we're going to specifically look at verses 19 through 23 this morning. As we're going to see, the nation of Israel was hoping for. They were longing for the coming of the Messiah. After John introduces Jesus as the Word become flesh to dwell among us in the first 18 verses of John chapter 1, he turns his attention to words spoken from the wilderness about the Christ who had come. These words are from a really unusual man. Pastor Scott used the phrase this morning, a bizarre man. He's rugged in form, he wears clothing made out of Camel hair wrapped with a rough-hewn leather belt. He maintains a diet, think of this, locust and honey. I've just wondered, did he dip? Anyway, you, you can think about it later. He lives in the wilderness. His name, we know, is John the Baptist. And he is a man, as the Gospel of John says, he's a man that was sent by God as a witness. And I suggest to us this morning, a witness of hope. If you found our passage, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. We do that here at First Southern as a way of acknowledging that God is King and His Word has total and complete authority in our lives. Hear from the Apostle John, chapter 1, verse 19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. And then they said to him, Who are you? So that we can give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet has said. This church is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we pause in this moment to simply ask that your spirit... Dwelling in us would illumine the Word of God. This morning we ask that we would understand what the Apostle John was writing and why he wrote it. We would be spurred on, Father, and and encouraged, challenged to be perhaps that bizarre, odd man like John the Baptist who boldly, boldly proclaimed that indeed the Christ had come in flesh. Teach us this morning, Father. And help us to be a testifier that indeed you, Lord Jesus, have come. You have given your life and you have risen from the dead that we might have life. Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm not an often reader of Rolling Stone magazine, just so we know that. However, this week they had an article marking the 20th anniversary of a cult. Some of you may or may not remember since it's been 20 years. The name of the group was called Heaven's Gate. The group was led by founder Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles. They met uh, back in the 70s. One was a math teacher, one a nurse. They took a trip across the country and they settled there in California and around about areas in California. They began to gather some friends along the way. They began to be called the crew. Well, the crew turned into a cult. And it's interesting, the mixture of beliefs that emerged from this group. Marshall Applewhite proclaimed that he was the evidence, he was the the second coming of Jesus Christ. And this group of followers bought into that. Their belief system is really odd. It's a mixture of extraterrestrialism and Christian theology. Applewhite was the son of a Presbyterian minister. And so he mixed a bit of Bible into his beliefs and thoughts. Indeed, he would suggest that UFOs would would eventually come and take God's people to be with God. God, by the way, was an alien. Strange beliefs, yes? March 1997, two things occurred. One, there was a comet that was making its way through the Earth's atmosphere. And in that same time period, Marshall Applewhite Convinced the 39 followers total there, including himself, that indeed this was the time. It was time for them to be relieved from their human body and to be transported to the heavenly stars for eternity's sake. 39, including him that day, partook of drugs over the next two to three days, long story short. On March 26, 1997, 39 people were found dead, shrouded in purple linen cloth. As horrendous and as horrible as that story sounds, for surely it is false beliefs, uh, a false Messiah proclaiming he was the true Messiah, it's not the only story. We can think of Waco, Texas and David Koresh. We can think of Jim Jones. And we can think of others who have come and who have proclaimed that they are the long-awaited Savior. And there will always be a group of people who follow. Why is that, church? Why why is it? I think it's because really every person is looking for a rescuer. Every person is is looking for some kind of Savior. For some, it's ideology. For some, as we'll talk about, it's idolatry. It comes in a variety of forms, but folks are looking, and the reality is nearly everyone around us, every day, is looking for some type of Savior. Most of us don't go into our workplace or to our dinners, large family gatherings thinking that truth. That's what was happening when John the Baptist arrives on the scene. The nation of Israel is looking for a Messiah, for a Savior. Back in verse 6, we are told John the Baptist was a man sent by God to be a witness to the coming of Christ. So as a reader, when we're reading through John chapter 1, we know more about John the Baptist than does the priest and the Levites who had been sent to determine John's actual identity. Look with me in verse 19. This, John writes, this is the testimony of John, John the Baptist. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Now when the apostle John uses the phrase the Jews, he generally means those who are in opposition to Jesus and his followers, this instant is no difference. We find out in verse 24, the specific group who had sent the priest, in this case, were the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. You see, there was something going on in the Judean wilderness. There was a a buzz happening throughout the city of Jerusalem. There's a man who seems to be a prophet who is preaching and baptizing and the crowds are, are, are following him. We imagine that the Pharisees probably felt threatened on one hand and curious on the other. So they send the priest and the Levites to determine John's identity and his authority under which he is preaching and baptizing. So the question is asked, who are you? I think we quickly learn what the religious leaders of the day were potentially thinking, what they were guessing may be the case their estimation was that John the Baptist perhaps was none other than the long-awaited Messiah. John picks up on this, and in verse 20, listen to his response. And he, this is a really oddly constructed sentence, he says, And he confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. You see, the Israelites have been waiting a long time. For the coming of the Messiah. God had spoken to Adam in the garden concerning the one who would crush the serpent's head. Abraham, the father of Israel, was promised that through his family line one would bless the nations through his family line. Moses was told that one would be raised up as a rescuer and a prophet like him for Israel and for the nations. King David was told that there would be one who would come to occupy his throne forever. But these words, these promises, they seemed distant to the Israelites. Think about it, it had been more than 400 years since God had sent a true prophet to remind them that one day the Messiah would come. It had been centuries, centuries of silence. For God's people. Silence. Silence until what seemed to be a bona fide prophet appeared outside the city walls. There were high hopes amongst the Jewish community, but but there's no total agreement on what the Messiah would look like and what He would come bearing. For sure there were varying expectations. Some were scripturally founded, some certainly were not. And so the religious leaders of the day, they send a party to investigate. Was this the Messiah was this the true prophet? Or was this just another fake? John's response to the investigation was, I am not the Christ. So the inquiry continued. If if you're not the Christ, then perhaps you must be a prophet of some type. Verse 21, the first portion there. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Hmm, curious question. You remember Elijah, right? Prophet of the Old Testament, prophet that did not die but was taken away by God alive to eternity. He says, I am not. You know, when we turn our pages back uh, in our Bible, we turn our pages back to the last prophet who had spoken and written in the Old Testament, we find Malachi. He writes in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, of a promised appearance of an Elijah like prophet who would bring a message of judgment and a message of hope. So that's the context in which the priests are asking the question. The last prophet known, the last writer says that there will be an Elijah-like prophet who will come. Are you? Are you that? Are you Elijah? John the Baptist. If we read the description of Elijah in 2 Kings chapter one, Elijah, uh, uh, John the Baptist seems to fit the at least the, the the lifestyle. Elijah was said to wear clothing of camel hair. He was said to to uh, dress with a leather belt around his waist. And so perhaps then this is Elijah. In Luke chapter 1 verse 17, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, is told, prophesied over, he was told that his son would come when he was born. He would come preaching in the spirit and the power of Elijah. At Jesus' transfiguration, he answers the disciples' question about, about the coming of this, Elijah like prophet, the coming of Elijah, stating indeed that, that that person had already come, yet Israel had rejected and ultimately had killed him. In Matthew 17, verse 13, it's noted that the disciples then understand what Jesus is talking about. They're like, oh, you mean, Jesus, you mean John the Baptist was the Elijah like prophet. So the thought that John the Baptist might literally be. Elijah returned to earth to prophesy was not altogether a crazy question. But John responds emphatically, I am not. Verse 21, the second half. They ask him, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. See, their assumption is that that there's a, well, Let me back up. In in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses makes clear in his last speech, in his farewell sermon to the Israelites, as he's preparing them to go into the promised land, he says to them, listen, God will raise up for you a prophet like me. God will send that one but for you. And so, there's a promised Moses-like prophet that was to come. Peter in Acts chapter 3 identifies Jesus as the one who fulfilled that promise. Are you the expected prophet? The Moses-like rescuer, redeemer prophet? His answer is no. So the progression of the questioning is really pretty logical. Are you the Christ? That's their suspicion. Are you the Christ? I'm not the Christ. Are you Elijah? I am not. Are you the, prof- the prophet? No. Verse 22. Then they said to him, Who are you? They're getting a little exasperated. I'm not sure how they said it, but perhaps there's a little bit of frustration in their voice. Then who are you? So that we may give an answer to the ones who send us. We've got to go back and talk to the Pharisees. You've got to give us something. Who are you? What do you say about yourself? Pause with me for a moment and think. The Jews are a hopeful people. They've been watching for the Christ to arrive. They have a deep desire for things to change. Think about it. They're under Roman uh, oppression. They're under the authority of the Roman emperor. They're not free. They haven't been free in a long time. They're wanting change. Even if it's only political change. They're hungering. They're hungering for the Messiah to arrive and make all things new. Make all things right. They're a hopeful people. John the Baptist could have claimed that he was the Messiah, but he doesn't. He could have claimed that he was the returned Elijah, but he doesn't. He could have claimed to be the anticipated prophet, but he doesn't do that. No. Instead, he aligns himself with the words of Isaiah the prophet. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 23 in our text, he said, I... I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. He chose instead to align himself with the words from Isaiah 40. And in so doing, he's announcing, church, he's announcing a second exodus. That is God's plan for redemption of his people from sin's captivity. That's the story. That's the story of Israel. The choosing of a people. The enslavement of a people. The rescue of a people. A deliverance into a promised land for a people. Oh church, that's, that's an elongated narrative story. That's really the gospel played out amongst a nation. And so here... John the Baptist is pointing to the prophet Isaiah's statements. And what he's saying is, the time has come. God's redemptive plan is in full motion. And at the right time, God has come incarnate. Word has become flesh and dwells among us. So when we consider the context of Isaiah Forty. We are reminded that the Israelites at that point in their history, they were exiles in Babylon. They were in Babylonian captivity. They were longing to be rescued and they were longing to be returned to the land of their fathers. To that promised land in which Joshua led and conquered. Isaiah figuratively speaks of the, the needed preparation for their return. In Isaiah chapter 40. That's what he means when he talks about make straight the way of the Lord. A clearing of the pathway for the return of the people. In Isaiah 52 and 53, he speaks of the suffering servant who will provide even a greater deliverance for his people which will ultimately be consummated in the new heaven and the new earth. Isaiah 65 and 66. So when John the Baptist denies being the Christ, or Elijah, or the prophet. But when he chooses to appeal to Isaiah 40, he's calling the people to repentance in preparation for the coming of the suffering servant. He's saying, listen, the servant has arrived. Isaiah's servant has arrived. Jesus is here. And you need to be a people who are called to repentance. John declares that he is the voice crying out in the wilderness, as was Isaiah, he is saying to this audience that what our ancestors needed then when Isaiah spoke are the same thing that we need today in the nation of Israel in our moment. Oh, friends, you're going to find, too, it's the same things that we need right now in 2017. It's the same thing that people all around us are looking for. I said at the beginning that folks are looking for a Savior. They're looking for a rescuer. They're looking for someone who will grant them hope and make their lives different, better. Isaiah's people needed it. John the Baptist people need it. We need it. We we need God's comfort, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. We need God's forgiveness, Isaiah 40, verse 2. We need God's presence, chapter 40, verse 3. We need God's glory, Isaiah 40, verse 5. We need God's word, Isaiah 40, verse 5 and 8. Just as the Jews were longing for Messiah in His first coming, in hope of comfort and forgiveness and presence and glory in the Word of God, so we too find ourselves today looking forward to His second coming. That's what we're going to do in a few minutes from right now. We're going to celebrate that Christ has come, that He's given His life, that He died on the cross, He raised again from the dead. He shed His blood and He gave His body for our salvation But when we get to the table in a few minutes, we're also going to be proclaiming, church, that Christ will return. Amen? And he says, I'm not going to drink of the vine until that day when I sit at the feast, the the, the banqueting table with you. Then, when we gather in that heavenly banquet, I will dine with you. And so in a few moments, we will proclaim that we trust that Christ indeed is coming back. So today, we too look forward to His second coming. We are a people who are longing for eternal comfort. We are a people who are longing for eternal presence of God. Imagine that. We're going to get to walk in God's presence. Just as Adam and Eve were in the walk of the cool of the day, we're going to, God is going to be present in our midst in a way that we can't experience yet this day. We are longing for eternal comfort. We are longing for eternal presence. We are longing for eternal glory. We are longing for the time when we are saved to sin no more. We are longing for the time when God's Word is fully realized. Oh, church, we're not the only ones hoping for a change. Our neighbors, friends, co-workers, family, they're all hoping as well. But most of them are hoping without Christ. Their comfort, often found in their material goods, it's only temporary. It's going to burn up. Their glory, often found in self-worship and worldly idolatry, is a mere shadow of the real thing. They haven't tasted the glory of God. Their sin, constantly on display, is pleasurable for the moment, but it is, listen to me, it is punishable. For eternity. What they need, and what perhaps some of you in this room need, is Jesus. What they need is a challenge from you to hear the claims of the gospel. What they need, and what some of you may need in this room, is to rethink Easter. Easter is more than bunnies and baskets. It's the announcement that one has not only come in the flesh, but he has died and been raised from the dead, that we might experience true comfort, that we might experience true forgiveness, true presence of God, and true glory, all in accordance with the true word of God. So when John the Baptist says, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, we are reminded that the Israelites were being called to repentance and were being provided a cleared pathway as they returned to the Lord and to the land that God had given. Every obstacle was removed by God Himself. So it is with those who need to rethink Easter. Obstacles are being removed. Messengers Messengers just like you and me have been sent to tell the great story of redemption. And true hope in Christ awaits all of those who will respond. Earlier in the Gospel of John chapter 1, it says that Jesus came, Word made flesh, eternal preexistent God. Second person of the Trinity. He comes in the flesh. He is light. And the light has overcome the darkness. And it, John, the apostle John writes, he says, listen, And all who believe have been given the right to be called the children of God. Listen, we have neighbors and friends, family members and co-workers, and perhaps some in this room, who need to rethink Easter. They have hope. Hope that something will be better, something will be different. But listen to me, my friends. Hope apart from Christ is hopelessness. At the core of the gospel is hope. Eternal hope for eternal life. Listen, as we prepare for Easter, let us be a people on mission, recognizing that this great hope that we have in Christ is not to be kept to ourselves, but it is to be shared generously. Have you ever thought about if John the Baptist had decided, I'm fearful? I. I I I don't want to open my mouth and proclaim that the Messiah has come. Yet that was his designated role. The people had waited, they had longed for, and they had hoped that the Messiah would come. And God in His kindness and His providence and the way He ordered things, He sent John the Baptist to be the forerunner and proclaimer. And the giver of hope to the nation of Israel. And subsequently, to us, the nations. John the Baptist did not keep his mouth closed. But he opened it. And he spoke. I want you to think about it with me for a moment. Who in your circle of influence needs to hear the word of hope? That is centered in the gospel. Who in your family is lost? Which neighbor needs Jesus? Which coworker is destined to eternal punishment in hell and separation from God? That you have the ability to simply open your mouth and speak the hope that you have experienced. The testimony from this wild man named John the Baptist spoken in the judean wilderness it should spur us on church to gospel engagement so here's how i practically want us to work this out in the next three weeks we'll make it as simple as i can a matter of fact i'm gonna make it fairly low bar challenge and i really want to encourage you to to raise the numbers that i'm about to speak of but what would it take for us to become a bold people who could indeed see hundreds of our friends and family gathered in this place in two weeks at 10.45 a.m. to hear the claims of the gospel? Who needs to be on the road in front of you, behind you, and beside you? So let me challenge us this way, church. One, identify three families or three individuals that you know they need to be here. You know they need to hear the claims of the gospel. I guarantee you all of us could probably easily identify at least three families, three neighbors, three co-workers. So number one, identify three families or three individuals. Number two, invite them. Invite them to come. So you're going to be given, or as you leave this morning, you're going to be encouraged to pick up one of these cards. It just simply says, Rethink Easter. Hope sacrifice, forgiveness. Would you take one of these cards? Would you use it? Just put it in that person's hands and invite them to come and join you. It's that easy. It's that easy. Certainly if you're able, invite them more clearly to hear the gospel. Share it with them. But minimally, identify three Hand this out to at least two. And then I want to encourage you, invest very personally in at least one for Easter Sunday morning. What would it be like if each of us or each family brought one other family? Could you see the difference it could make in our community? Listen to me, friends. We have neighbors, coworkers, family members, friends who are Wanting hope. Who are searching for some type of redeemer or rescuer in their lives. And you and I, we know the hope of Christ. So let us be spurred on by John's testimony. Our testimony is to be the same as John the Baptist. God has shown up in human flesh bringing the hope of redemption. So let us be the ones who testify in the wilderness of the world in which we walk. May it be. I want us to close our part of this service right now just by pausing. I want you to go into prayer for a moment. I want you to identify three people in your circle of influence, three families, three people who need to hear the claims of the gospel. Right now, identify those before the Lord and begin to pray for them right now. Father, these are the names of the people that we care about. Lord, some of them we know much better than others. Some of them we have likely shared the gospel with for years, maybe even decades. Let us persevere in that good work. Let us not give up. But Father, we lift these names before you now several hundred names that we have prayed for in this last moment. Lord, would you use us? Would you give us the boldness that John the Baptist had? God, would you cause us to be the one who cries out in the wilderness, Messiah has come, hope is real, life eternal is available? God, would you use us? Would you cause us to be that voice in that person's life?